Now every society has its powerful figures, right? People who shape how we live, and every day, you know, we look to politicians, uh, we're looking to scientists, big business, journalists, and all that, right? These people hold power over us, right? Because life is what? It's complicated. Uh, and we need powerful people, knowledgeable people, to tell us what to do, right? And uh, they do a very good job of doing that, right? So life is hard. Um, and on top of that, most people, of course, look within themselves uh, for some emotional inner strength to face many challenges of life. But uh, I think, I hope you all agree with me that COVID-19 has shown us that we are not enough. If we learn anything from COVID-19 is that we are not enough. Because just one virus turned life upside down. It reminded us we are small. Our humanity is not something we can depend on. God is the only one we can depend on. He is the all-powerful God. The power of God can do for us, right, more than anyone else can do for us in the millennium. God is powerful. With, with God in our life, even our deepest valleys are on higher ground. God is powerful for his people in whatever situation we're in. And this is what I want us to remind, to remind us this evening, uh, that our God is powerful. And to do this, uh, I thought, let's look at Exodus 13, uh, this famous event in human history, the crossing of the Red Sea, which you, I'm sure, perhaps learned in Sunday school, right? Uh, we don't really hear sermons on this, strangely enough. Uh, that's because we don't really... Uh, spent too, a lot of time through the first five books of the, the Bible, and we should. And so we'll look at that. So please turn with me to Exodus 13, uh, verse 17. Now, before we look at the passage, the detail of this narrative, uh, just a quick background, which I'm sure you know already. Uh, we are in Exodus, the second book of Moses, if you like, the second book in the Old Testament. And therefore, humanity has rebelled in Genesis through Adam and Eve. But God has not given up on us, Right? He has a plan to bring his people to, to, to bring humanity back to himself. And to do that, he has selected Abraham, and through Abraham he'll bless the nations. But of course, through Abraham's descendant is Israel, isn't it? So in effect, he has chosen the people of Israel as his vehicle for bringing redemption in the world. It is through Israel that the Messiah is going to come. Now, in Exodus 13, what has happened is that the people of Israel are living in slavery in Egypt. And God has raised Moses to lead his people out of slavery. But the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, doesn't want this. But he has reluctantly been forced by God to give in. Those ten deadly plagues have forced his hand, and Pharaoh has had to let the people of Israel go. And so we now come to this verse 17 of chapter 13, because Israel now is on its way to the promised land. And, I, and this passage really uh, has a lot to teach us. But one of the important things it teaches us is that God is powerful. Because that's how it ends, isn't it? The final verse, 31 of chapter 14, Israel saw the great power of the Lord. That's the point this passage is making. God is powerful. And there are two truths we learn about the power of God in this passage. We're actually going to walk through this passage, this long passage, verse by verse. So hopefully we finish it. Uh, we're going to go through it verse by verse. And there are two truths. And if you, you should have had a, uh, an outline as, which was outside there. Hopefully you picked up one. And it's got two points on it. The first truth is that the Lord has power 
To do what? To direct human affairs. God is sovereign over human affairs. He uses his power to direct human affairs. So Pharaoh there has finally, look at verse 17, has finally let the people of Israel go. But instead of Israel taking a direct route into Canaan, the heavenly setnav, as it were, has a better route, right? So look at verse 17 to 13 of chapter 13. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return and return to Egypt. But God led the people round by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Now, picture this. Israel is made up of peasants, right? They do not know how to fight. And God knows that if Israel comes up against the war machine of the Philistines, they are going to run. God knows that. And so he graciously directs them to go east, right, via the Red Sea, right? Now, if we're watching this video, we can see them leaving, can't we? Imagine this, there's a vast crowd of people, men, women, and children, and they are over the moon. They're excited. They are finally free from their slavery in Egypt. And we see that as they are moving out, they have a special cargo with them. It's in verse 19. Look at verse 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had met the sons of Israel, solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. So the casket of Joseph is very important because it is reminding us an important truth. It's reminding us uh, that this exodus from Egypt is not by accident. God had clearly communicated this to Joseph. And Joseph was aware it was going to happen. And therefore he made arrangements that when, the, when it does happen, long after he has died, his casket will be carried into the promised land. So Israel is leaving Egypt because our God is a faithful God. He has kept his promise. God always does what he promises. Every page of the Bible speaks of the faithfulness of God. I'm currently studying Psalm 36, and I love it. it. Verse 4 says, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. And we know, of course, that our Lord is faithful. Why? Because the Lord has kept his promise to send his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to enter this sin-stained world and die on the cross for us. He kept that promise. And we know the Lord is coming, the Lord Jesus is coming. Why? Because we know the Lord keeps his word, is faithful. God is faithful to his people. You need to remember that. God is not just faithful to his people. He is present among his people to direct us in every step of life. And we see that here is guiding Israel by the pillars of cloud and fire. Look at verse 20 to 22. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in the pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in the pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. He's the God of all seasons. Verse 22, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart before the people. So God, we see here, does not just direct the universe, 
Many of us are, are, are happy to say God is in charge of the universe, but we don't tend to think that God is in charge of every detail of our lives. But we are saying here that God is involved in the nitty-gritty of the lives of his people. As a follower of Christ, God is at work in your life. Yes, I know, you can't see a, a pillar of cloud or fire today, right? And that is because you have someone even better than a pillar of cloud and, 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 and the pillar of fire. God is living in you by his Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit is your helper, your comforter, your advisor, your power, your strength, your encourager, your sanctifier. He's guiding us in the way we should go. God is directing every step of your life just like he's leading Israel here. Now, listen, it is not always clear to us how God is doing this in our lives. But it is true. Right now, God is directing your life for his glory and your good. And we must trust his leadership. Listen, in everything God does, there is something hidden from us. God is greater than us. He knows everything. We only see a little of his plans. So let us trust our Father, his omnipotence, his all-knowing nature, and so we see here that the people of Israel are encamped at Etham, isn't it? But then God gives Moses a new order to move the people to Pihahiroth. Chapter 14, verse 1 to 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahiroth, between Migdo and the sea, in front of Beelzephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say, of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. So what is happening here is that God is setting a trap for Pharaoh. And God is using the people of Israel as bait. All right? God plans to harden the heart of Pharaoh to draw him out in order to destroy Pharaoh. Mo- Moses, of course, knows about this plan and he obeys God, doesn't he? Uh, Pharaoh immediately takes the bet, he thinks the Israelites are trapped, and decides to go in for the kill. Let's read on uh, verse 4. And they did so, it says at the end of verse 4. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servant was changed towards the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariots and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with officers over all. The whole army is being assembled. Everything is God. Verse 8 says, and the Lord added the art of Pharaoh. King of Egypt, he is a God who is sovereign over the human heart. He hardens Pharaoh's heart and he, Pharaoh pursues the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. Pharaoh is pursuing Israel now. But why is Pharaoh doing it? He's doing it because God is making him do it in a sense, right? He's doing this because God is at work. It is God who has hardened Pharaoh's heart. 
And so God is showing us here, isn't it? That is the one who directs all human decisions. The Lord is casting the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. In the hand of the Lord is the heart of the king, and God decides what kings do. Even the heart of the most powerful person in Britain is not beyond the power of God. And it's so important we should understand that as believers living today, uh, the government looks completely chaotic, but God is even sovereign over what's happening in Downing Street. And we should remember here that Pharaoh symbolizes all the enemies of God, really. He's a type of Satan. And so the Bible is teaching us, in effect, that all the enemies of God are under the direct sovereign power of God. Beloved, we need to remember... Like the people of God in the Old Testament, we are not at the mercy of anyone. Because our God directs all human affairs. Sometimes in our lives, it can look like the devil has the upper hand, doesn't it? It can look like the devil is winning. But we are being told here that God is sovereign over all evil. We are never at the mercy of our circumstances. Whatever situation you are facing today, be comforted. God has power over human affairs. That's the first truth I want us to, we, we learn from this passage. The second truth we learn from this passage is this. The Lord not only directs human affairs, the Lord has power to deliver his people. The Lord has power to deliver his people. That's the second truth. So let's go back to the narrative. Israel is encamped and Pierre Roth, we see they are waiting for matching orders from God. But what has happened is that time is running out. So, so basically, they are against the sea. Pharaoh is coming. But it's taking long for God to act. Right? Verse 9 to 10 tells us, The Egyptians pursued them. All Pharaoh's horses and chariots and these horsemen and his army and overtook them. That means they are, they are literally within touching distance. As they encamped at the sea by Pierre in front of Belzephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Israel here is in a bleak situation, because the issue is, you see, is that not only have they got the sea behind them, and they've got the army of Pharaoh in front of them, actually, the issue is that there are mountains on either side as well. So there's nowhere to go. They are totally stranded, right? And, and, and as we think about this situation, put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites. It seems that God has led them out of Egypt only to drive them again into the arms of Pharaoh. And I'm imagining as they see their situation right now, they are, they are full of fear. They are full of regrets. They must have tears in their eyes as memories of their old slavery under Pharaoh floods in. They are thinking now the end is near. We will but die. We will die, surely die. And they are asking themselves, what have we done? What have we done? Beloved, all people of God know something of this helplessness. This sense of being completely surrounded. And, and God for a moment looks like he's not there. When your back is against the sea. You feel like God has forsaken you. 
Naomi felt it, didn't she? When she came back to Bethlehem from the land of Moab, she had lost her husband and her two sons in the land of Moab. When the women of Bethlehem asked, is this Naomi? What did she say? Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Job felt his helplessness, didn't he? When he lost his possession, his children, and his health, the Bible says he sat down in ashes and lamented. Let the dead perish which I was born, Job says. And the night that said, a man is conceived. And then he asked that question, doesn't he? Why did I not die at birth? Why did the knees receive me? You see, God sometimes makes us have our backs against the sea. And this comes in different ways in our lives, isn't it? It may be the sea of poverty. It may be the sea of illness. It may be a sea of a broken relationship. It may be a sea of just losing a loved one. It may be a sea of opposition. God sometimes allows that. He allows us to face the sea of suffering. When we cry out like Jeremiah in Lamentations, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Lamentations 3, verse 1 to 2. God's people experience that. But the good news of this passage is that God is the one who drives his people to this point of helplessness. Sometimes our sin does that, but, we, but this passage reminds us it's God, Israel hasn't sinned. Israel is being driven into helplessness by God directly. What is happening to Israel is not by chance. And it's not by chance because God sometimes puts us on our backs, right, to make us look up to, to, to his almighty power. Sometimes God take, makes us take steps backwards, doesn't it? So that we can leap forward. You do that in long jump or uh, high jump. You've got to take some steps back. God does that with his children. God often breaks us before using us. God often breaks us before using us. Helplessness is a servant of all the children of God. And if you are feeling helpless at the moment, God is working through that helplessness. This is no break time. God is at work through your helplessness. Because God drives us into a helpless situation to humble us, and sometimes to deal with some sin which we may not be aware of, or simply to make us hunger for him more. And it is only in times when we are truly helpless and we have nowhere else to turn to that God grows our dependence on him. Being stranded, beloved, like the, like the Israelites, is grace. Being stranded is grace. It's God at work. Beloved, God does not willingly or unnecessarily grieve his beloved children. He allows us to be afflicted in this way, to be helpless because it is for our good and for his glory. And so are you feeling stranded at the moment? Could it be that God has brought you to this point of helplessness, helplessness and brokenness? If you're trusting in Christ, your position is not by accident. God is at work in and through your helpless situation. Because God has promised you in his word. Can a woman forget the baby at her breast? God asks. 
Can a woman have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Isaiah 49, verse 15. God never forgets us. God hasn't forget, forgotten Israel here. You see, problems always change our relationship with God. They either drive us closer to Christ or they drive us away from the Savior who died for us. And so the question this evening is, is your challenge escorting you to the Father or is it driving you away from Him? Is it making you pant for God or is it making you pant for worldliness? Let the challenges drive you to God. Don't react like how Israel reacts here. They start off okay by crying out to God, but then, did you notice, then panic sets in. Look at verse 11. Verse 10 is, is, is interesting, and uh, the way it ends, and the people cry, of Israel cried out to the Lord. That's good, isn't it? That's prayer. But look what follows. They said to Moses in verse 11, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt. When trouble comes, the society always looks to blame someone, doesn't it? That's what Israel is doing. People always look to blame someone when they're in difficulty. We see it in our society when many problems now, they're being blamed on COVID. Come on, guys. Come on. Right? That, those are where our policies, not COVID. <laughs> COVID didn't take any decision. So we blame COVID. We blame Russia, of course, don't we, for things. Just the way society is. We like to shift problems. And we behave like this, of course, because we take our eyes off God. We're just like the people of Israel. They only see Pharaoh, so they're now filled with fear. You know, fear can break us psychologically, isn't it? To the point that we no longer want to move forward in life. People, some people have extreme anxieties. They just can't function. Extreme anxiety, extreme fear. Fear can do that. And we see that here. Israel now wants to go back. Look at verse 12. Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Wow. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. What a terrible thing to say, isn't it? Poor Moses, I was thinking. I'm very surprised that Moses has not already underdone his resignation. I would have done that. I mean, these people are ungrateful. What ingratitude? For all that Moses has done for them. And they know it's not Moses anyway. They know he's just taking orders. But the truth is that we are not different from Israel, isn't it? When everything is going well, we think God is with us. When trouble comes... We forget God. And whoever is associated with God, right? Israel has forgotten two things. They have forgotten who they are, and they have forgotten whose they are. The miracles they saw in Egypt seems to have completely disappeared from their mind. They have bought into Satan's lie. They are speaking like him, aren't they? They are saying, we cannot rely on God because we are not who God says we are. That's what they're saying. We are not who God says we are. And that's what the devil does all the time, doesn't he? He did it to Adam and Eve. And he has done it to them. He has made them forget the love of God. 
And that's why we need the word of God in our lives, isn't it? Because Israel has turned its back on Moses and God. What will Moses do? What Moses has done here is that he speaks God's word to them. Look at verse 13 to 14 there. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. We should note in passing here that when I read this, we should not in passing, it struck me that we should not in passing what Moses does not do. Sometimes, you know, when we read scripture, we need to see what the person is not doing so we can learn something from that. Notice that Moses does not turn this issue, they are grumbling, to be about himself. Yes, they are grumbling with him, but he doesn't personalize it. (laughs) He is a faithful and caring pastor, we might say, of Israel. He has been slandered by the people he's serving, that he loves, but he's refusing to make these issues to be about him. All he cares about is them. I find that so challenging. Because as I thought about this, this is very hard for any of us who serve in any leadership capacity, not just in the church, but as mothers at home, as wives, as husbands, and, 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 and bosses at work, people who have people reporting to them. Because what happens is that in, whenever we're in position of leadership, we are always tempted to fight for our corners. Sometimes we have got good grounds for that. But it's interesting that Moses doesn't do that, even though he has a right to do that. Why? Because a true servant, even when he or she is right, is not quick to assert their rights. We are called to be like the Lord Jesus, who didn't assert his right. We are called to be dormants for Christ. Our love for people we are serving should override our personal concerns. We should always be mindful of them. What is best for them? What is best for them? And only rarely in the service of God should we dare assert our rights or even defend ourselves. That's why I learned from Moses and that's what we need to learn, particularly for us who are serving God in this church as elders and deacons. That's in passing, isn't it? Now notice what Moses says in verse 13 to 14 again. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. You know, Moses is saying, You talk too much. Always mouthing off. Stop mourning about this and that. Israel, you won't be blessed by God as long as you are bent on winning the talking prize. Learn to keep quiet and, and let God do his thing in your life, he said. And when I read this, I said, I need to hear that. I need to hear that. I like to talk. I need to hear that. You need to hear that. We're all prone to grumble, aren't we? There's a time to talk, of course, and there's a time to be quiet, Ecclesiastes reminds us. But most of the time, it seems like it's a time to talk for us. We are prone to gamble, to grumble to murmur, and we don't often do it loudly, but we do it passively. 
most of the time. And you know what I mean? We go around, for example, campaigning to everyone how terrible our, our life may be or our relationship in marriage may be, things like that. Our workplaces, how terrible they are. And it usually moves beyond simply sharing with others about what's going on. We are actually really hemming it at God. It's like we haven't talked enough, and so we, we think that God isn't listening, so we just keep mouthing off, don't we? We do it that way. Sometimes we regularly just are just down about life. We are not satisfied with the blessings God has given us. God has blessed us so much in Christ. But we just remain down. We do not vocalize our disappointment in God somehow. But, but, but our demeanor, everything we do, shows we are disappointed in Him. And of course, this manifests itself in uh, not praying regularly, not reading our Bibles, not sharing Jesus with others. Why, why, why do we struggle with all of these things? Because we are secretly disappointed with God. We are quietly grumbling against Him. Beloved, let's repent of all of this. We need to repent of this as individuals. We need to repent of it as a church. As a church especially. Because as a church, sometimes I get the sense that we mourn more about the world than we actually do anything about it. It's great for us to speak what's going wrong in the world, but if that's all we're doing, we have, to be, we have to ask ourselves. By the way, just on this grumbling thing, I mean, we shouldn't be careful about how we grumble against the government. We need to speak well of our leaders with respect. And most of the time when we speak of the prime minister, he's like really disrespecting him. And of course we're disrespecting those, the Lord who has appointed him. We must repent of this. Instead of grumbling, we should be like Moses, isn't it? It seems, it seems actually that when Moses hears the grumbling, he goes to talk to God. And God gives him the master plan. That's just implicit in the text, actually. Because notice how verse 15 starts. The Lord said to Moses, and the Lord says, why do you cry to me? Right? It's almost like Moses has spoken uh, to, Mo- to, to God. And then God is answering. Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Says, so get on with it. Let's still lift up. Stop, stop crying. Get on with it. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the people of Israel, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry land, on dry ground. And I'll harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I'll get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. So God has spoken, and then, of course, God swings into action, doesn't he? The angel of the Lord, right, moves to the back to protect Israel against the invading Pharaoh, if you like. Or you, because, of course, what's happening is that Pharaoh is there, the sea is here, the sea is going to be parted, right? So the angel of the Lord, who was by the sea, now moves to the front, but, of course, they have turned this way, so basically he's moved to the back as a bridge against the enemy, right? Our God is wonderful, isn't it? He stands in between us and the evil one. And so we see here, uh, what happens is that we now have the most dramatic scene. Well, actually, let's read that in verse 19 to 20. Then the angel of the Lord was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood Behind them and coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. That's the protection I'm talking about. And there was a cloud and the darkness. And it lit up the night 
without one coming near the other all night. So that's the protection. Uh, so God has spoken as it were. Then comes one of the most dramatic scenes in the Bible. God then commands a strong east wind to part the Red Sea and make the land dry. Look at verse 21 to 22. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. It's almost like a second Genesis, isn't it? God makes the, land, the dry land appear and the waters being a word to them on their right hand and on their left. So imagine being there now, isn't it? Imagine being there. You know, the sea now has been parted, right? God has made the land dry. The water is holding itself on the left and the right, right? Can you imagine the joy of the Israelites now walking in? They have just seen the most mind-boggling things you can ever see. And we're being taught here that the God of the Bible truly has power over nature. Even the wind in all its unpredictability has been summoned by God to do what he wants. Like we've been learning in Nahum, God is in the whirlwind and the storm. He's commanded the east wind and he's in it. And he's made the land dry. And then the most foolish thing that we have ever seen happens. I mean, it is foolish. When you see something like that, you're expecting Pharaoh just to turn back. Like, what's going on? I need to just survey things. But nah, Pharaoh's heart has hardened. Instead of turning back, he decides to pursue the people of God. Look at verse 23 to verse 25. The, the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. Crazy. Oh, Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. This is even before they are covered with water. They just things they just can't get the stuff going forward, right? And the Egyptians said, let us flee. So they want to turn back now from before Israel for the Lord's fight for them against the Egyptians. It's a funny sight, but a tragic sight. As we see, God draws the Egyptian chariots in, not to save them, but to clog their ships, to stop them from advancing. God, as sovereign, determined not simply to defend Israel, but to destroy his enemy. Egypt is completely powerless here. And now God unleashes his full might, doesn't he, against Pharaoh. Look at verse 26 uh, there to verse 28. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared, and the Egyptians fled into it. The Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. For all the hosts of Pharaoh had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. God has just drowned the Egyptian army. They are lying dead now on the seashore. God has defeated uh, every obstacle the people of God are facing. He has, def- notice, he has defeated the sea. That's important. 
It was an obstacle. And the people have walked over it. And now he has defeated the most potent human opposition Israel has ever faced. Pharaoh's entire machine, war machine, has been completely destroyed. It's like destroying the Chinese million, 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 million plus army they've got. And the Bible is teaching us here, isn't it, that there is no obstacle in life that our God cannot deal with. There is nothing you're facing at the moment that God cannot solve. He is all-powerful. We have every reason to trust him. If God hasn't given you what, you're, what you want at the moment, it's only because God knows better. And he's doing it for your good. Because it's not, it's not for lack of power. The one true God of the Bible defeats any obstacle so that he can deliver his people and so that they can live for him, right? And that is what has happened. While the Egyptians are drowning in their deaths, right? The, the people of God are walking safely on the other side. Let's read on verse 29 to 30. We're nearly there, but the people of Israel walked in dry ground through the sea, the, the waters being a war to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. God has saved Israel just as he promised. He is faithful. This is an act of God. And notice that Israel has not just been delivered physically, they have been delivered spiritually. Have you noticed that? The old fear and panic has now been replaced with reverent fear and trust in God. Look at verse 31, our final verse. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Israel has become a new nation now. Under the leadership of Moses, they are the new redeemed people of God. And there we have it, isn't it? So just to summarize what we have learned. Two truths, stop me. The Lord has power to direct human affairs and he has power to deliver his people by defeating all obstacles. So what, what does this mean for us every day then? Just two quick things I just want to draw your attention to. Two practical things to take away. First of all, let us thank God that we have access to this power of God through Jesus Christ. The all-powerful God is our God in Christ. The wonderful news of the Bible is that God has put on our powerless, uh, has put on our powerless and weak human body in Christ, so that we can share in the divine power. If you like, the fall cut us off from the power of God, but God entered this world. If you like, to plug us back to the power of God in Christ. You know, when we read the four gospel accounts, we see this power of God in the life of Christ. It's on display. God, Christ is the power of God walking among us. Because in Jesus, we see uh, Jesus having the power to heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, walk on water, calm the storm, and feed the animal. Christ, we see in his way, is through the whirlwind and the storm. He's the God of Naaman because he walked literally on the whirlwind and the storm in Galilee. As he walks on the sea there. As, as a true follower of Jesus, the omnipotent God, our Lord Jesus, is now directing his power.
towards you and is now living in you. What a wonderful thing it is to be a Christian, isn't it? We have the, the, the power of God is, not, is, is, is outside of us and is at work in us. Because Christ lives in us. The all-powerful one. So let us, first of all, thank God as you hear, as you read this narrative, as, as you think about it later, just be thankful. Spend some time just to thank God for his power. Thank God that you know this God of Exodus. Thank God that you're not living powerlessly. You now live in union with the all-powerful Christ. His power is your power. I mean, we could move on on the implications of that. But we'll just quickly, because of the heat, obviously. Second and final takeaway. The second and final takeaway. Not only thanking God, let us actively trust the power of the Lord every day. Although God is all-powerful, we cannot enjoy his power without trusting in him. So his power is for us. But if you want to see us experience more power of God in our lives, we need to have faith, grow in faith in him. I just want to say, don't forget something we haven't mentioned so far in this narrative, which is this. We must not forget that Israel only walked through the sea because it had faith in the power of God. You know that. How do I know that? You say, I remember, well, why do you think that's true? Well, it's true because of Hebrews 11 verse 29, isn't it, sister? Yeah. Hebrews 11 verse 29 declares, by faith. You see, they, they grew a bit. <laughs> by faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry ground. They did it by faith. But when the Egyptians who had no faith tried to do so, they were drowned, isn't it? So it's faith. The point is that God acted sovereignly prior to their faith, but Israel had the responsibility to trust in God. They had to still walk through. And the lesson for us is obvious, isn't it? The power of God is not an excuse for us to sit in unbelief, in activity. Sometimes I wonder whether... Our churches are really reformed churches. Do we really believe in reformed doctrine? Because we are so inactive. When you believe God is powerful, when you believe the creator of the heavens live within you, oh, what can man do to me? They licked her out there. I need to go out there to share the gospel with them. Reformed doctrine, when we properly grasp it, produces a dynamic, active, prayer-filled church. And so I wonder whether we've really understood it, many of our churches, including ourselves. Because the power of God is an invitation to trust Him. You know, imagine if Israel saw God at work and then said to themselves, can you imagine that God has part of the Red Sea and Israel then goes, this is new? <laughs> it is too dangerous. Uh, we've never seen it. Uh, maybe we just wait. We can't walk in it. Yes, God has just parted the Red Sea, but what if the water falls on us as we are walking in? Have you ever actually thought about that? Honestly, have you ever considered that question? This is why I think it's true. The right of Hebrews, of course, is right. Under divine inspiration, they walk by faith because I think I could see a reason they could have been frightened of that. And some of us seem to be frightened to see when we see God at work. 
That's unbelief. If you want to see God's power work among us, we must have faith in his power. Beloved, God can display his power without our faith, but he has ordained it. Unless you have faith in his power, you won't experience his power. Faith is the empty hand through which God hands us the blessings. So how do we grow in having faith in the power of God? Well, by reading his word. By reading his word. Faith comes by hearing. And of course, faith is also a gift. The measures of faith. All of us are given our faith. By faith we've been saved through, by, by grace we've been saved through faith. That's not your doing. It's a gift of God. So is that saving faith? But 1 Corinthians 12 also talked about the gift of faith. So what that means is that we must pray for God to increase our faith. The disciples said that, didn't they? Increase our faith. Beloved, there's no, we look around us at the moment, the world where it's headed, the powerlessness of human governments, the coldness of people, the many challenges we are facing, and the difficult problems that are on the horizon. How should the church respond? Well, there's no secret to what we need to do in these difficult times. There's not more Twitter, not more TikTok or YouTube or things like that. No, we need to put our full weight on the God of Exodus. We need to trust him. We need to look to him and make Christ our all-powerful God, therefore, enable us to be thankful for his power and to grow in our trust in his power. Amen.